0: This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication, which is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today is the second of a three-part weekly series examining issues surrounding race, media, and politics, and the interrelationships between the three. Today's conversation is with The Washington Post's Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter Wesley Lowry. He covers law enforcement, justice, and he served as the lead reporter for The Post in Ferguson, Missouri. He's covered the Black Lives Matter movement for a number of years. And in November, he had a book published called They Can't Kill Us All, Ferguson, Baltimore, and a New Era in America's Racial Justice Movement. When we talked last You were in the process of writing the book, editing the book. Uh, Your book, They Can't Kill Us All, Ferguson, Baltimore, and a New Era in America's racial justice movement came out, I believe, in November. And uh, for for our listeners who may not be acquainted with it, Wesley, uh, tell us about
1: it. So the idea of the book is to create, in many ways, a first-person account almost a diary of what it was like to cover uh, these various uh, touch points um, over the last few years, right? So it begins in Ferguson, Missouri with the death of Michael Brown and then it is kind of a chronological location-based account Ferguson to Cleveland with Tibia Rice to Baltimore with Freddie Gray to Charleston um, for the shooting at Mother Emanuel um, AME um, back to um, the back to Missouri, to the Ferguson for the anniversary, as well as to the University of Missouri for their campus protests. And the idea, again, was kind of to, you know, this was a unique two-year period for the nation, for all of us. Um, and, And for me, individually, as a reporter, learning to cover these stories, seeing them, you know, being one of just a handful of people who covered all of these pieces, um, and what did we learn over time? What did we figure out? And so in many ways, it's kind of a, a searching account, <laughs> trying, to, uh, trying to see if, if I learned anything <laughs> over those two years.
0: Did you see differences? I know you saw similarities, but did you mm-hmm. see differences given geographic location or history or context?
1: The history and the context is really important everywhere. You know, I think one of the things, you know, so I definitely saw similarities. You know, one of the conclusions essentially of the book is that, you know, when Ferguson first happened, Michael Brown's first killed and you see the big protests and the police response, most of us said what's wrong with that place? That, that wouldn't, you know, that wouldn't happen here. That's not what, and then the next shooting happened. Everyone go, well, what happened there? And even what was interesting is city to city, each city would say, well, yes, we know that there's a bunch of protests right now and there was a shooting, but we're not Ferguson, right? There was this feeling that the need to distance, yeah. um, that they were somehow the worst example. And we're, we know all of the same things are happening here, but whoa, whoa, whoa. we're not, we're not that. What, 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 the conclusions of the book essentially is that is that the story of Ferguson is a story of America, right? That, that it was not that Ferguson was unique or different in some way. In fact, it was just like all of the rest of us. It was Main Street suburban America. And if it could happen there, then it means, in fact, yes, it could happen everywhere. But to actually <laughs> actually answer the question, the I do think the unique context and histories are, are important, right? Because it's how these tensions between... Um, communities, specifically the black community and police manifest. In, in Baltimore, you see um, this manifestation linked directly to drug war policies in many ways. right? In Ferguson, you saw it linked directly to the use of speeding tickets and traffic warrants. right? And so each place kind of has its own unique way that perhaps historically um, certain groups have been marginalized or over-policed. And, and that... Begins to lay the groundwork for how these incidents um, burst through the, you know, through the through the skin in each of these places.
0: You you had Ferguson, Missouri, obviously Midwest. Mm-hmm. You've had Baton Rouge in, in the South. You've had suburban Minnesota in yes. the Falcon far Heights. northern Midwest. Do you see geographical
1: differences? So I think that's one of the things that's. Things that's really interesting. I remember one of the activists I quote in the book. I remember him talking about how before Ferguson, he thought of the ideas of police brutality or police impunity as issues of big cities on the coast. Yeah, I saw what LAPD did to Rodney King because that's LAPD. And I know what happened to Sean Bell in New York because that's New York. But this idea that just a suburban place in the Midwest might have an incident like this was really shocking uh, to this activist. Um, I, I do think there are some geographic differences. Uh, policing looks different in different places. Um, I, I think that policing in the suburbs is a unique... Um, so in Falcon Heights, for example, in the Philadelphia Castile case, um, and even in, in Ferguson, the idea of traffic stops and how they're employed, and how different people's experiences um, are very different in a traffic stop is something that in many ways is more applicable to kind of heartland suburban America than it is necessarily to a big city. Um, while... On the coast in the big cities, you're seeing the shootings or the interactions that have happened there have been less traffic-oriented and have been much more about kind of physical interactions out in the street, out – you think of the Eric Garner situation or, in, or the um, – there's you know there's a Brandon Glenn a shooting in L.A. And so there are – there certainly are geographic differences just, be, again, because you know, where we live determines a lot about our lives here and it certainly determines what our interactions with the police might be.
0: Talk about, if you can, the impact of the Trayvon Martin case. Was it the fuse that lit all of this powder keg, or or is that just coincidence?
1: I believe it to be. You know, I, I think that—I mean, I, th- I think back. I remember the Trayvon Martin case. I was here. I was at OU at the time, and I remember being captivated by that case in a way I had not otherwise— um, with, any, with anything else, I mean, even in my lifetime, I can't remember um, going back probably to the O.J. Simpson trial as I was a, you know, a, ki- a young child was probably the first time or the last time that there had been something that so enamored me um, and that I felt so urgently that I had to pay attention to. Um, I look at not just the shooting of Trayvon Martin, um, but I look at kind of a whole period of time, 2012 to 2013. You've got the death of Trayvon Martin and the and the slow burn of that case the the death the calls for George Zimmerman to be arrested his finally being arrested and the long trial process
0: his personality correct the whole you,
1: you, part of the mix the whole year of of this story right mm-hmm. you could not have missed it had you tried right. um at the same time, you've got the death of Jordan Davis, uh, similar um, – at the time, we called it the loud music shooting, a loud music trial. Jordan Davis, who was in the car and a uh, man, Michael Dunn, gets upset that the music's too loud. It opens fire and, and kills him, a similar kind of vigilante type, two-civilian two interaction. There was also, in the, at the time, a uh, case, Troy Davis, who was an inmate who was executed in Georgia. That was a, it was a controversial execution. Um and so that was kind of the building catalyst and you get to 2013 Zimmerman goes to trial in the in the Trayvon Martin shooting and you have Zimmerman's acquittal you have at the time an initial, I want to say a uh, hung jury in the Jordan Davis case. And you also have the, uh, within weeks of the Zimmerman acquittal, might be the right before or right after, the release, the broad release of Fruitvale Station, the film showing the 2009 death of Oscar Grant. And so there was this moment that actually felt a lot like 2014 felt. Everywhere you went, there was this blaring and so clear evidence that something isn't right. It was unignorable. It wasn't one case. It wasn't two. It was, wait, so I went to this movie and I saw this terrible thing. And then the Zimmerman case is going on and the Jordan Davis case is going on. And then, and I think that was really what, that was the boil over point at which people said, we got to do something. Something has to be different. And then I think the waters calmed for a year or two. And then 2014 happened. And you see Eric Gardner, Michael Brown, John Crawford, Tamir Rice. It, it, you hit that drumbeat again where it felt like everywhere you went, this was what was going and on. And
0: that drumbeat to, to me as a lay observer, uh, uh, it seemed to build and build and build uh, perhaps through the spring and the summer of, <laughs> of 2016. And then we had the lines drawn. We had Black Lives Matter. We had Blue Lives Matter. And then poof the explosion of the presidential election, and all of a sudden, no news. No, 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 no talk about it. No, no. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's still smoldering, but
1: no attention at all. None whatsoever. And, And that's what's so fascinating. I remember even before the 2016 cases, I remember when Early 2016, we were having the same conversation. We were saying, it's been all about the presidential election. There's been almost no two full years of this being probably the top domestic news story. And then the presidential election had just consumed all of the capacity. And I remember we were working on, at the Washington Post, we do this police shooting database project where we're tracking, attempting to track every fatal shooting. And we were getting ready to do our six months into 2016 story. Our second year of tracking this data, we'd seen that the police were still killing people basically at the same rate. There were more of these killings that were being caught on camera, but that it was really – there had been no drop-off. And we're preparing to write this story. And the top of this story, the lead of the story is essentially that while everyone stopped paying attention, this is still going on, right? At that, to that point, there had not been a single name that had trended nationally. There had not been a single case anyone knew about. And as we so we report the story out, we write the whole story, and we're going through the process. We're dealing with the lawyers and and <laughs> right. and, and the top editors. You know, we're making sure, sure you know, this story is all the way through the editing process. And then we see this name start trending, Alton Sterling. I'm like, oh, what's this? as so we look into it, there's been this shooting in Baton Rouge. It seems, and so and so that so I, we write about that that shooting, and then we're trying to figure out. All right, well, we can we can tweak this. You know, except for this one, no one's paid attention to this. You know. And then the next day, Philando Castile in Minnesota. I'm like, oh, this is a... And the next day was the shooting of the officers in Dallas. That this story had been dormant publicly for six months. I mean, you have to remember, all of those those shootings happened in a, over a three-day period in right. July, July of 2016. To that point, there had been no conversation about it whatsoever in 2016. The occasional Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump getting a question about it, but there had been no conversation. So what's interesting now... We're in the same place now. I'm actually working on a story as we speak about that, that's similar. It's that, about how, look, police shootings have not stopped happening. Um, the same issues exist. Um, however, we have turned our eyes to something else. Uh, the question becomes, at what moment? And I think there will be a moment. It takes the right, it'll be the right video, the right time, the right case. There'll be a moment where we suddenly whiplash and turn our eyes back to it. And the question is, um, with, with that... And there's a real question to be asked about that, right? We we pay attention, pay attention, pay attention, then we ignore for a long time, and then we switch back and we look at it again. There's a real question about if that if that's not part of the reason that you know I think everyone wants to live in a world where there are fewer of these deaths.
0: Well, l- let me ask this because we hear, uh, I'm, I'm gonna try to be right down the middle here. Mm-hmm. We, we hear from President Trump a continual rhetorical drumbeat that we have urban jungles period uh, urban life is is ghetto life mm. it's it's dangerous to go out your 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 door in any major city uh, in in the United States how does that drumbeat of rhetoric fit into the the picture and and the scenario
1: I think that one thing we have to think about and we always, I think we always have to consider is the role that fear plays in our daily lives and our politics. Um, that so many of the decisions we make and that our parents made, our grandparents made, it, are, are based on self-preservationist fear. And I don't mean that in any you know, negative connotation. Right. The, rea- the reality is where we live is based on we chose to move from this place to another. And at the time, there were reasons for that, whatever those reasons were. Right. And so, the MSNBC host Chris Hayes has a book that just came out, uh, "The Colony and the Nation." It was really excellent. And um, but he talks about it, that the title "A Colony and a Nation" comes from a speech that I believe LBJ gave as he was signing the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act—one one of the two. And the idea was that he was saying we can no longer have a colony within a nation. We can no longer have certain spaces that we interact with differently to the benefit of the broader nation. The the idea is is that you have whether it be cities, whether it be certain places where some demographic groups live and others and others do not, that can be policed differently, that are handled differently, that, you know, we, we very often it's this idea that if where I live things are calm and peaceful and orderly doesn't really matter if over there you're stopping and frisking people and there are police officers in the schools and there are... Because one, that's not inconveniencing me at all over here. But two, if that's what it takes for it to be safe where I live, our inclination is to say, yes, do that to those other people. It's, it's this question of how we, how we think about... It. And so when the president and others talk about cities... It's evoking a specific politics and a feeling about that other place where those other people are, where the crime is, where the bad things are, where the – we need to deal with that differently than we deal with where you live.
0: So let me make a stretch here. Mm -hmm. The rhetoric I hear characterizes urban life as living in a war zone. Uh, we have war zones uh, around the globe, what, be it Syria or or other places, and we know that daily tragedy happens there. Daily, people are killed there. Mm-hmm. But in our minds, as ordinary citizens, we say that's a war zone. That uh, you know that uh, that's that's the cost of war. So if we characterize our urban centers as war zones don't we become
1: immune to what goes on there? We do. And it, and it also, it builds into our perception the premise of violence. This is, a, like you said, it's a war zone. This is a place where bad things happen and people get hurt. And we, we accept that in a war zone, they kill some of our guys and we kill some of theirs, right? You know, there's kind of this accept, this understanding that this is a violent place where violent things happen. As opposed to, Thinking of inner city, you know, South Side or West Side of Chicago or East Side of Cleveland as our home, our backyard, where we live, we wouldn't, where because it it starts to affect our perception of how we might, how me, how we might remedy these places, and how me, how we might remedy the social, um, and economic issues of these places. If it is a war zone, well then you've got to meet fire with fire. If it is a economically depressed. Um, marginalized space well that calls for a whole different set of potential jobs solution. jobs Correct. jobs right? <laughs> it's a completely different set of solutions
0: and expectations
1: yes versus if it's a war zone well then who th- cares exactly and i and i so i do think that there is a and i don't know that that's necessarily completely intentional by everyone who uses but that i think Earth, that but i, I do d- believe that, that that that's a real i think there's an astute point you made. I mean i think there's a real framing there when we think of a place as a war zone what do we think of you know, you know what do we think about a war zone and the expectations as you said casualties are a daily way of life and, and it's an expectation it's an expectation not not something that becomes unacceptable right that no people shouldn't be dying here and no there shouldn't be blight and there should be jobs and it's an expectation game if, if we were describing people would never allow the place where they live wherever that is to be described described that way it would be disastrous it would be cataclysmic they would immediately say no 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 no, no. this is not a i know there was that bad crime last week but that's not, we don't live in a people war people can't zone.
0: even stand that my school is subpar
1: <laughs> well exactly and so can you imagine you know cleveland i can imagine describing solon as a war zone or or twinsburg people would go whoa, 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 whoa what what are you what are you talking about that's because that's the other thing i think there's a intentional or not, it begins to dehumanize the people who live in, in these places as well.
0: So let's take that one step further. You've traveled around the country. Obviously, it's in your book. You've covered almost all of these uh, uh, situations around the country. What is President Trump' preoccupation with Chicago? And how does it fit into this whole fabric,
1: if at all? I think we have to remember that President Trump is an '80s Manhattanite. You know, this is someone who moved into the city, had had a solid amount of wealth, um, was in high, um, you know, in prosperous places with with uh, you know well-funded uh, people, and he was doing so in the '80s and '90s at a time when New York was obsessed with crime obsessed with the crime the tabloid crime of the day obsessed with getting the murder rate down there had been there's been a real spike in crime and and white manhattan especially wealthy white manhattan was obsessed with not being the next person mugged in central park not being the right. next and i think that when we think about trump that way it start I, it's something i i go back to a lot because it starts to explain a lot of his preoccupation right that that this is the type this is exactly the type of thing That he cared a lot about when I walk out of the, you know, the social club in midtown Manhattan, I don't want thugs coming after me and mugging me and, you know, taking my wife. That was a thing that people really thought about a lot then. And you look at his interactions, his early political interactions, in addition to all the kind of real estate battles and the tabloid fodder there. Many of the early political stories he got himself involved in were New York crime stories, getting involved with the Central Park Five, for example, or the you know like basically being this type of get those people out of here or prosecute them hard. This preoccupation and this concern with so-called urban crime, and so it's unsurprising to me now. Again, for someone like Donald Trump who whose life in any of these cities when he goes to chicago he's land he's landing his private jet being driven in into the city going into a high-rise go the idea that that very in many ways pampered life and again i don't mean that in any derogatory way the reality is that donald trump goes to chicago he's not getting on the bus and going to (laughs) (laughs) not getting on the l (laughs) exactly (laughs) right the the reality is the idea that that might be threatened by some type of physical for him how many shootings happened in that place where I go and it it's, it threatens a very way of life and and so it's this idea of whatever needs to be done to stop that needs to be done. I think we see that very often in his rhetoric when he says we're going to send the we're gonna send the feds into Chicago. We're going to look. It's what's interesting is Rahm Emanuel and other leaders in Chicago have essentially said, please send them. We would love some federal back. Like, please bring them on. <laughs> yeah, down. yeah. You're send some more ATF agents and help us solve some gun crimes. Awesome. You know. The, the rea- but but I, I get it. Like I said, it's not it's not foreign to me when I when I hear Trump talk about these things. It makes a lot of sense to me, just knowing who he is and what his background is. We'll be back after this short
0: message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate students about today's communication industry. But to produce innovative leaders. These leaders will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research on communication concepts, issues, and problems. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provides benefits to people regionally nationally and globally. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash scripps college with all the things that are going on in Washington and our preoccupation with investigations and and everything that's happening, the tweet of the day, what is currently happening with the Black Lives Matter movement and and what progress if any has
1: been made so in this moment there's still there's still work being done there are still many of these local organizations and local activist groups many of which existed even prior to right. when we even you know knew what to call them or many of them are still doing the work they're doing and many of the national either figures or groups that we kind of got used to are still doing work but are having much less success Attracting the attention that they once were able to. Um, I think about what, what good example this is. A few weeks ago, maybe it was last month, but a few weeks ago, there was a shooting in I want to say Seattle. and there was a protest. There was a march, a few thousand people in downtown Seattle. None of us have ever heard of it. Had this the, had nothing changed, the exact same shooting, the exact same march, the same community response a year ago? It would have been wall to wall cable coverage. It would have been a, that there's there is something to be said. We hate in the media talking about ourselves. I mean, think that back. we love talking about ourselves, right. but we but we don't but we don't always like to think about the role we play in news and in making something a story versus something else. The, the reality is, right now, we are just so consumed with what's happening in Washington. And again, and that's not un, undeservedly. There's a lot going a lot on. That going needs on. journalism right. and needs people need to be paying attention to, but. I think sometimes we have an inclination or a desire to say, "Well, what happened to them? What did they stop doing?" You know, we assume that they must have stopped, the activism must have stopped, or the protest must must have stopped. We've stopped looking for it, and and I think that now the second part of that question was what if there have been kind of victories or what has changed, what what's been achieved. I, I do think that there has been a a cross policing, a focus, and an understanding about how can we have conversations about. Um, who's being killed and are there ways that we can prevent some of these from happening? I've been to police training sessions and to kind of conversations amongst chiefs where there's a real focus on hey look um, a quarter of these folks, half these folks are mentally ill maybe we need to triple down on the amount of training we're giving our officers maybe we need to maybe we need to be hyper aware and vigilant of you know that we're killing one group a little bit more than the other we, we need to, measure this. Now, there's politics involved. You know, no one wants to go to a group of officers and, and say, hey, you know, be hesitant before you do anything. Sure. That's the last thing a chief ever wants to say. <clears throat> but sure. I do think that there's been a shift, in, at least at the top levels of policing, and there's a divide here, too, between the chiefs and the line officers. I think at the higher levels, there's certainly been a cognizance and an awareness of this moment and of these conversations and also an acceptance of the need to create relationships where they otherwise didn't exist. I think one of the biggest things is this realization for many people that what your relationship with the police is might be different and is different than what someone else's, right? That there's an assumption very often that when you interact with the police, it's because they're there to help. You called them. They they have got. Right. And then – and on the other hand of that, there's an assumption, um, especially among black and brown Americans largely, that interacting with the police is the worst possible thing that could happen to your day, no, no matter what the context is. It's never – I think that – I remember I talked to the former Chicago superintendent, Gary McCarthy, um, and he – I don't know if he stole the line from me or I stole it from him. I can't remember <laughs> which, which way we did it. But it's a pet, pet peeve of mine and his as well when people say that um, – you know, we have to restore the relationship between our minority communities and our officers. And my response always to that has been, all right, tell me what date you'd like to go back to. Whatever we restore. You can't restore something that never existed, right? That, all right. So we want to go back to where the relationship was in the 60s. Do we want to go back to where the relationship was in the 20s. Do we want to go back to the 18? You know, at what point did our policing broadly have a positive relationship with black communities, what we know, what was, what <laughs> was perfect. Yeah, right? no, yeah, yeah. What are we restoring? What exactly are we seeking to get back? And what we know, you know, being I mean, students of history, is that we don't want to. We definitely don't want to go back. What to what
0: people want to go back to is what they see in old classic movies, movies. of the mm-hmm. of the Irish cop mm-hmm. on the beat who <laughs> who knew everybody in the neighborhood, right? Of uh, course. Uh, and and
1: the, and the reality is that did not ever exist in these communities. It might have existed. It might have existed, and I, and I think there probably still is a Hollywood overrepresentation. To what extent that even existed in some of those white neighborhoods, right. but I'll accept the premise that <laughs> maybe some—you know—that there were probably places that were not unlike that. Right? You know, I, look, I know a lot of a lot of my actually a lot of guys I went to OU with, my roommate for four years, from Cleveland cop Cleveland cop families, and they live in a bunch of West Side suburbs, and they know they know all the co- sure. they're related to all of them. They, they know. Sure. There there are places like that. Those places. Few were, and they were never inner city Chicago, <laughs> <laughs> and,
0: and never perfect.
1: Correct. Uh, you, you've spent a lot of your
0: career in journalism um, dealing with news consumers mm-hmm. because you, you're you're quite uh, into social media at, at all levels, and and you I think have perhaps a more direct link with news consumers than than. Some other reporters that 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 I know. That being said, do you think that we as news consumers just have a limit of what we can absorb and and perhaps all of the Washington news and the international news and the new administration news we've reached our limits so, we don't have room yes. for Black Lives Matter. We don't have room for racial justice. We don't or for have room a- anything. for
1: anything. And it's not even just—it's not even just this set of issues. It's any other number of things. Uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I call—I call my beat in what I work on. I'm politics adjacent, right? I get a lot of questions now about, so how's has everything changed? How, how are you doing with Trump? How's the? And I'm like, look, I don't cover politics anymore. That's yeah. not what you know. I like got. There are times where I get kind of sucked into this story or this thing. Sessions does it, but. It's not my job every day to cover the Trump White House. And so because of that, and because my colleagues are doing such a great job, I wake up every morning and I've got to read seven Trump Russia stories, and then, and then a story about this investigation over here, and then a travel ban thing, and then a immigration. And nine stories later, as someone who has all the subscriptions to everyone and know, and personally knows a lot of the writers and has a, has a social reason to read this, so I can tell Phil he did a great job on this story when I see him in an hour. I get to a point whereby story eight, story nine, You're story, done. I don't even have any capacity to consume this anymore. And I think that, and so I can only imagine. Again, I'm someone who has, you know, people in the media, you and I, we consume excessive amounts of media. Right. We, like I guess in part because we know a lot of the people producing it, or we, uh, you know, I can't imagine what it's like for just a normal consumer, someone who this isn't the most pressing thing in their day. They they're figuring out what time they need to pick up their kid from from after school and what they're you know and if their boss is going (laughs) to lay them off they 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 have a real urgent life and they get through two or three stories today one Russia story maybe (laughs) one local story about the and and so I think that becomes difficult as well there's not a um, so it's dual like I said I think our readers don't necessarily have there's so much going on, it's moving so rapidly that they don't even necessarily have time to catch their breath and catch up, even people who want to be. Uh, but I do think that, you know, I don't want to be too, I, I don't want to give the media too much of a pass on this, because I also right. believe that at the end of the day, I mean, I've written, I mean, it's not like the media generally, I've I've written fewer stories on this, in part because it's not where the moment is. It's not, people aren't breaking down my door to write them anymore, it's not, and, and so there is a, you know, it's the difficulty with journalism, where it's it's both a it's an entertainment enterprise, it's a public service enterprise, it's a capitalistic commercial enterprise.
0: But isn't there also an element from a reporter's standpoint, Wesley, that that you you have to stay fresh, and it's difficult to stay fresh when you're. When you're steeped in 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 something, and I just noticed uh, just recently you did a story on a fight club in yep. West Virginia, and I thought, now that's different. Maybe he's trying to recharge his batteries. Maybe he's trying to find similarities. Uh, I I don't know, but it it piqued my interest.
1: So I was, I was I was thinking about that even as I was answering those last questions about that about the story. So I'm glad you brought that up. The you know for me because I think that factors into it as well. There's a there are a few different elements at play, right? The first is that you have reporters who, one, certainly want to stay fresh. Want to be And the story of the moment right now is the story of Donald Trump and everything Trump adjacent, right? right. And, and as reporters, we run towards the story, whatever that story is. Beyond that, um, you also have a lot of reporters who spent, my, I'm one of them, two or three years on the Black Death beat, basically. Uh, That is an exhausting place to be. (laughs) That is not a, I've said this jokingly, although it's not a joke. I mean, the West Virginia story I wrote, I think is the first story without any, none of the characters are dead. And I think it's the first story in years I have written without a dead person in it. Um, There's no killing. That is not the central part of the story. The, but I also think that, and so so for me, when I do a story like that, you know, I, I don't I didn't, you know that, and that story kind of came up organically. It wasn't necessarily something that we, you know, that I did instead of something. Right. You know, it, it was that uh, at a colleague who um, actually uh, Jessica Contrera, who had just recently was here uh, speaking at some classes, who had been down in that same county working on a healthcare story, and they saw these signs posted everywhere for this fight club. Essentially, they said, "This is, I mean, this is middle of nowhere. No, there's not a, a bar in the county, and so the idea that they're going to have this massive event." piqued our interest and they said, you know, someone should go down and do this. And I happen to be free. I could make it work. But for me, I also this year, while I'm going to keep doing, the goal is to both keep doing these stories I think are very important, whether people read them or not. Right. However, I also, one thing I, and that's what I enjoyed about doing that assignment, was I also want to continue to tone some different muscles writing a different story, being in a different place, even just a different format. I hadn't written a straight feature story in a year. <laughs> you know, just the idea of dropping into a place- Seeing different f- things. Finding right? some characters, yeah. because I think that's what, because because the reality is, no matter what we cover, no matter what our beats, the ability, w- what's key is the ability to be able to do basically a little bit of everything. We're generalists mm-hmm. as journalists, and, and so, what I was craving, you know, in many ways, I've been craving my old Metro Desk days at the Boston Globe and the LA Times, where I would show up and they'd say, "Go here. This is your story today," and you know, <laughs> four times out of five, you might hate it, but you know, it's over at four thirty, and my job today is to tell the best story of this house fire, or right. this car crash, or this, or you've got that that big feature, that enterprise idea that you work on a little bit here and a little bit there over a month, or, yeah. a, but I, I missed in I've missed in some ways the idea of for the next two days, I'm going to tell this story. And then and I'm going to do the best job I can at that. And I'm going to write it the best I can. And then I'm probably never going to think about this thing. You know, like and I'm, going to, and I'm going to learn and gain from this experience. And then I'm going to go to the next one.
0: So my last question is, is probably a little strange. But <laughs> your answer would be everybody to this question. But let's put that aside. Who should read your book?
1: What I attempt to do, and I... One of the reasons I wrote this book is that after months, th- at the time it had been about a year. It had been about a year since Michael Brown's death when I decided to write the book. I was still getting a lot of email, and a lot of phone calls from Washington Post readers from people who said, I read your article yesterday and I still don't quite get it. What's everyone so upset about? Or this shooting seemed bad, but wasn't that other one really justified? Or like th- this kind of litigation and this not understanding, why is so, why are so many people so upset? And I think that for a lot of, a lot of readers and a lot of white readers, there was that feeling, whether they people felt like they could articulate it or not, this idea of, I don't quite understand what people are so upset about. Like, you know, it doesn't – and what I told – what I would tell those folks in, in tweets and emails and phone calls sometimes was that I think we make a mistake when we look at a group of 10,000 people in the street and we attempt to understand all of them as a collective. Why isn't this a completely unified message? Or what do they really want? Or what the – what I advise people to do is to say, to say, can I understand one of these people? Can I pick one person off of the group and say, tell me why you're out here today? What, what experience in your life makes you so identify with what's happened? What do you want to see change or be different? Because when you can understand one person, now you can perhaps understand 10 of them. And now you can maybe start to understand the 10,000, that this is a collection of individuals with individual experiences. And so what I attempt to do in this book is I attempt to tell the stories of these individuals who I met in each of these places, the people who I meet when I get to Ferguson, the people I meet in Baltimore and Cleveland and Charleston. And as I do that, I attempt to explain, perhaps for folks who didn't quite understand it, didn't quite get it, what what happened and what this moment was. And so the answer is, I, th- I think that folks who, I, th- I think that level, level-headed, level reasonable, logical people who perhaps don't feel as if they agree with the politics of the protest, perhaps don't feel as if they understand them. I think that the goal of the book in many ways is to tell the stories of some of these individuals to those people, because I think at the point at which we can understand each other at a human level, that I can understand that you are you are a person operating in, in good faith from your own experiences, no matter what your politics are, no matter – at the point in which I can see you as a human and I can understand why, even if I disagree, why you might have done the thing you do or why you might believe the thing you do. That's the step towards an actual level of understanding where now maybe we can get to a, a place where we move forward together.
0: Today, we've talked with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Wesley Lowry about the intersection of race, media, and politics – This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at iTunes Podcasts, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or you can review it through iTunes. If you have questions or comments about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio dot edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio dot edu.